There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is the Open City Podcast a show about the past, present and future of London. It will feature new stories about the city and fresh perspectives on the challenges and opportunities we face together. Welcome to the Open City Podcast. In this Open House special episode, we will be talking about this year's guidebook, The Alternative Guide to the London Boroughs, produced by Open City and edited by Owen Hathley. I'm Zoe Cave, Deputy Editor of the Open City Podcast, and I'm joined by one of our podcast hosts, Merlin Fulcher and the legendary maverick, prolific Owen Hathley, author of many books, including Owen Hathley's Adventures in Post-Soviet Space, Ministry of Nostalgia, and the upcoming Barnstormer Red Metropolis. Owen, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Good. And so you are calling in from your home in South East London? I am. What we're hoping to cover in this podcast is basically this, what the alternative guide is, um, how it was made, why we produced it, who was involved, and the themes that it covers. Um, and I think from your side probably as well, Owen, it's been a huge undertaking. It's been, we've done it at absolute breakneck speed, and it's completely different to what the festival has produced before. Um, so, Owen, for our listeners who have either never done Open House or never heard of the festival, or for those who have been were expecting our more traditional guide this year, what is the alternative guide to the London boroughs? I think the first thing that it was was a way of acknowledging the fact that, that the West End, that sort of central London, tourist London, had disappeared in the course of those six months. It sort of been resuscitated a little bit and is now sort of on life support, but for several months it simply had gone. And that kind of, you know, you would go down to something like the South Bank and it would just be the people there you would see would be sort of narrowed down to like, you know, kids drinking cans on the walkways and the skateboarders were still there and a few people going for a stroll. And the millions of people that would go there as tourists, either from the rest of the country or the rest of the world, just had gone. And the thing with Open House, I suppose, is that it's always been about, in a way, kind of being a tourist in your own city a little bit, getting to kind of go and see the things you wouldn't normally get allowed into. And it just seemed obvious that this wasn't going to happen. And actually, some of it is, to my surprise. Um, You know, some of the lockdowns have been lifted enough so that obviously quite a few events are now happening. But when we started it off in May, it really seemed like that none of that was going to happen. So what it was going to mean is people exploring the places where they live. And that, I think, uh, led to this kind of 
moment, I think, because that kind of just disappeared for a bit in a puff of smoke, that you could kind of imagine imagine London in different ways. You could imagine a London that wasn't massively overdetermined by property, finance, and consumption, which are, I think it's fair to say, what this city has been largely turned mm-hmm. over to for some considerable time now. The main principle of the whole book for me was that it would be about people, London as a city that people live in. Yes. Because I think the yes. way London is discussed a lot of the time is as if it's not a city that people live in. It's a city that people visit. It's a city that people make their name in. It's a city that people have a kind of bit of time in and then they go elsewhere. It's, and, and one of the things that kind of came with that for me um, is that I wanted to, to have loads of people in it who are a, a clear majority of the contributors who are from London. I feel that London is so often discussed by people that are not Londoners and have come in from the home counties or come in from the north or come in from other parts of the country who, and and London becomes their story and their narrative as if nobody grows up in London, as if nobody is kind of born and goes to school here. So I really, really wanted it to be about that kind of ordinary city but connected with the idea of it being an ordinary city, I suppose, is the fact that London is, by definition, very, very not ordinary. Um, it's uh. a deeply kind of weird and complex and strange city. And a lot of things that, in simple architectural terms, could be quite boring in other cities are enormously exciting in London because of what people have done with them. So one of the essays in the book is on um, on the Brixton arches, which are a classic example of, like, they are just some railway arches. You know, if that, if that like, if those railway arches were in, you know, Kidderminster, we wouldn't be talking about them. Um, but what people did with them from the, from the late 40s onwards is what makes them interesting and worth visiting and worth preserving, which actually failed because they got, everyone in them got evicted, but you get the, you get the idea. So is that where, in the title, it was obviously called The Alternative Guide to London? So we're living in a London now where often uh, the history of the London is is defined or enshrined in a kind of placard that's put up by a developer or some kind of interpretation panel or an estate agent who writes a summary of what East Dunwich is according to them or something like that. So so this is the alternative or, or are there more alternatives or is this the one that's most important right now? I suppose if I want to sort of look at the sort of things that are in this book in terms of the actual kind of buildings that are described, it's it's got a huge amount of housing estates. A lot of it is quite sort of basic civic buildings and civic structures, community centres and so on. There's quite a lot about it in industry. And it's generally very much about the things that aren't on the rendering. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're very much not the kind of Barclay Homes London, but they're also not Ian Sinclair's London or Peter Ackroyd's London. Then they're not heritage London, um, and they're not. Not only that, they're also not kind of Jack the Ripper, hauntological ghosts of Spitalfields, psychogeographic London. They're not that either. Charles Dickens' sort of ghostly London just doesn't feature in it at all. I think it's it's always worth something like this, starting with where you are specifically and going like, well, what in here would I would I want to show people? Uh, being on the shielding list, I spent most of the last six months literally in a flat built by the then Metropolitan Borough of Camberwell um, on a spot that was um, destroyed by a V1 rocket in in 1944, I think. So there's like two blocks where the V2 went, V1 rather, went, and there's green space between those. And there, every flat's got a balcony and everyone's got everyone's got a lot of kind of 
screen space and light. Weirdly, these are not things that people have talked about as being what's important in London housing. What's important in London housing is it being iconic, it having character, it being old, an iconic building or what have you. And these really, really basic values have really, really been understated. Um, but actually, like, thousands and thousands of Londoners live in blocks like that. And, of course, the irony is those basic things have stood us in really good stead in this extraordinary situation. You know, when you can't leave your house, you know, when there's, like, you know, a, a plague outside, basically, um, everything really narrows down to, like, do you have some light and air and space where you live? Do you have some green space? Um you know that's that, that, that and and these things have really been neglected in, in in London housing massively, and not only they've been neglected, they've been specifically demonised. You know, we have this book, which is it actually has a range of emotions in it. You know, there are bits of it. You know, maybe at a first glance it seems nostalgic. Maybe at a first glance you can sort of get a bit of uh, melancholy in there, but it's also angry. You know, there's some really fiery passages in it. Um, and also, it's not doesn't give a sense of complacency at all. Like, I mean, how how do you see those kind of emotions as reflecting this kind of moment that we are in in London right now? I see London as a city which has this kind of paradoxical thing where, on on, on the one hand, you know, it's immensely privileged. It has infrastructure spending way beyond what anywhere else in the country has. It has cultural infrastructure way beyond what anywhere else in the country has. Although that's mostly disappearing right now. Um, you know, it has um, a lot which other places would like to have. And in London, you have, you know, David Cameron living next door to 72 people getting burned to death because cheap cladding was put on their block. You know, like what, down the road from me in Brunswick Park, you've got where Boris Johnson lived. And then next to that, you have Sayo Gardens, where, you know, botched renovations led to several people dying in a fire 10 years ago. Um, so that's the kind of city there is. And so I always think kind of in many ways, the first victims of London system are Londoners. So there's this great sense of frustration I find in London that everyone is kind of expecting us to, you know, pay insane amounts of money for shit flats and to, you know, do jobs we don't like and to generally, and, you know, to do 60 hour weeks and so forth for the sake of keeping this bubble going. And I don't think Londoners are to blame for that bubble. I think most people in London don't want that bubble. And I think that's been reflected in Londoners' voting choices. I mean, one of the things I mentioned in the introduction is that last time that, the, that London voted for the winner of a general election was 15 years ago. So, yeah, you have this kind of paradoxical thing of, like, it's seeming like a powerful city, but the people who live in it have very little power and decreasingly so. Well, I'd certainly say in support of that is growing up in London and knowing that this is a city where a third of young people grow up in poverty, um, living on a street where I was living in a housing cooperative house, but my neighbours um, were sort of constantly renovating and changing their homes and swapping and sort of witnessing a kind of property jumble, uh, jigsaw puzzle unfolding in this drama of the street before my very eyes. Um, you certainly, you certainly knew very well that there was a London which was quite different from the one which was uh, yeah, disregarded as this place of metropolitan elite. Uh, but also, uh, what, what we've then gone through now and this year, and spending far more time within these territories where we grow up or where we currently live now, is that you feel that possibly London has become more of itself in that people are 
Uh, you know, more and more people are staying at home from work. More and more people are keeping the money that they'd otherwise been taxed between them uh, and the, uh, and getting to and from by whatever prep or the, the transport company for themselves. And so that for, for, for so many decades of being um, being squeezed in this way, that then uh, you then have this moment where London really becomes itself, and it becomes itself in the boroughs. It becomes itself in the streets of Tooting, you know, the streets of Camberwell, you know, and and so on. I suppose I suppose what this sort of brings it onto is is different how different people imagine London when asked what it is you know so right at the beginning you were saying you ask someone to picture it they'll picture Piccadilly but I think what I from from reading the book have got that you've got these 33 very different voices of people who live or have lived in the boroughs and actually their version of what they might imagine London to be will be probably quite different from each other's there might be a north-south divide, there might be sort of, you know, neighbouring boroughs might have a similar idea. And I think what I was quite interested in asking you, Owen, is did you, these 33 different voices, how did you get the ones together that you have? How did you brief them? And what did you, when you saw the sort of the, the you know, first draft, second draft rolling in, how did they match to what you had originally imagined for this? Um I was really almost kind of shocked at how much people were giving me exactly what it was I wanted. <laughs> and and very much it was, you know, the sort of stuff I've been talking about. It was about, you know, write about, you know, the London that's walking distance from your door. There were exceptions to this. And I shouldn't sort of suggest that this is just constantly like people stomping around their area. There were also, there was also a kind of, a little kind of wish list of my head, in my head of like specific places I want specific people to write about. So, you know, I wanted um, Josie Sparrow to write about William Morris and the Red House, although she has no connection whatsoever with Bexley. Um, you know, I wanted Michal Moravsky to write about the um, Polish Community Centre in Hammersmith, although he'd never been to it before. So about a, maybe like a quarter of it is things like that. It's like matching writer to subject like that. But the other three quarters of it is literally like, tell me about this particular place I know you know incredibly well. And... It kind of helped as well that there was a kind of... I knew that certain people had been really annoyed about certain sort of ways that London was discussed. So around the time I was starting to work on it, there was this kind of thing that people were doing on Twitter, mainly journalists, where they were talking about which part of London they least liked. And one of the things that came up a lot was Stoke Newington. And I knew that a lot of people that had grown up in Stoke Newington um, were very much like... The reason why it's so insufferable is because of people like you, you bastards. Yeah. Um, so there was this real, like, how dare you? Um, so for the Stoke New for the Hackney chapter, I got Ida Dickadem, who's a councillor in Battersea, but who's, his father is from Stokey, um, to write about, you know, the kind of radical Turkish Stoke Newington that, that he knew when he was growing up. Lots of which are still there, of course. You know, you go to Stoke Newington, and as well as all of the, all of those things. Um, you've also still got Gorky House, you know, recently renovated at the, in the middle yeah. of Stoke Newington. You know, that, that those things actually survive a lot more than they're given credit for. Like the essay on Brixton and and, and, and there is, you know, very much um, about the fact that, you know, the kind of Brixton that Windrush migrants made is still there. Um, you know, no matter how many preps are, are kind of put there, that, it's still there. Yeah. And do you think that the each borough has probably... At best, a reputation; at worst, a brand. And actually, perhaps you know people who who, like you said, come to London for a certain period of time and then leave, without giving it the context of either 
you know, quite objective histories, something like the Hackney Council, uh, the Hackney chapter, sorry, versus actually people sort of more like the narrative that they have from growing up there and how those two can overlay between the version of someone who does just go along to Stoke Newton and wanders up Church Street and is like, my God, versus the actual sort of the slightly more embedded history and how how important it is to overlay those two. Yeah, I mean, in a way, like, it wasn't supposed to be kind of, like, hostile to the sort of people that go, oh, my God, I hate Stone Newington, but it was supposed to be kind of like, there are a load of things that you're not seeing. Scratch the surface a bit. Yeah, and there's, you know, one of the books that I always think of when I think about London is Chanam Yeovil's The City in the City, you know, which is about these two cities which actually exist in exactly the same space but that everyone pretends are separate. And they have a separate police force, a separate government, and as far as I recall rightly, even a separate language, though it's a long time since I read it. And everyone in that city gets around this by what they call unseeing. Mm-hmm. So the kind of main character, a detective, you know, if a crime happens in front of him that's being committed in the other city, he unsees it. Yeah. Um, and this is basically how most people live in London, um, that you have these kind of parallel lives being lived next door to each other. I think what really struck me about Ivan Dickerden's piece on Stone Newington uh, was that it, it actually reminded me of Ian Sinclair writing about Hackney, but it was so refreshing in that rather than referencing like some outdated anarchists and artists, it was actually referencing a uh, community of people that I didn't know about, but I knew existed, but I really didn't have any way in at all. But I think also this conflict that you're seeing in that Twitter debate and that also Zoe mentions you know, having grown up in London, having seen places like, say, like Northcote Road or Clapham High Street go to be what they are today from something quite different. It's that feeling that people go there now to venerate those as places, but what they're venerating in that place is completely different from what you've witnessed as a young person growing up there. And there's no threshold where the two of you have a conversation. I mean, one of the funny things that I found in in, in being involved a lot in in politics in the last five years uh, and being involved in electoral politics was certainly something I hadn't done before, um, was that it brought those people together, which was the first time I'd seen it. It's a weird coalition between those two groups of people. It's incomers who have come in, got themselves a degree, working in probably a quite insecure job, probably in the culture industry, and it's people that grew up in the estate next door. And the kind of the kind of political movement, I think, in the city in the last five years was a coalition between those two people, which is really... What I sort of tried to represent in this book is is that conversation that I think was happening because I think that that conversation was incredibly important and I see it kind of dissolving now and that worries me a lot. There were writers who sent me pictures of buildings that they'd written about that were depopulated, that were, you know, kind of pictures from the Reaper Journal in the 60s or something. And one of the things that, that, that me and Rosa and Finn were very much doing, every time we got a picture of a building with no people in it, we were just like, okay, right, that's not going in. And we would then go on this kind of hunt to find, you know, a picture that had people in. And here are the places we actually like. And um, rather than kind of going, oh, Brixton, it's such a mess, it's horrible, and said to be kind of like, you know, Electric Avenue is amazing, let me tell you why. What's interesting is that we've we've sort of spoken about Lon- Londoners to varying degrees. Like some of them are people who have been who are born here, have lived here, who continue to live here. Some born, left, won't come back. Some moved here and will you know adopt being a Londoner. It's quite an interesting thing because I remember meeting someone on, uh, when I was on holiday, 
And you know, said, oh, where are you from? And he said, oh, I'm based in London. And I remember thinking, I was like, that's really interesting, the term I'm based in London, as though that's yes. your, your this, and this is probably where some Londoners get bad reputations. It's like, I'm based here, but I can go wherever I want from there. And then which actually sort of links back into that, what you say in your introduction, where yes, there were those people, but when the when all the of the options to consume London were shut down, they left. It was they flew. It was gone. And a so lot in that did. sense, yeah. 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 I just watched them out the window. But yeah, that, that base thing is really there's so much in that. It's just like it's a place where you're supposed to kind of go and get your fortune and then you go to Margate. Yeah. Lots of I'm sort of baffled by a lot of that. You know, the kind of yeah. like I was in Hackney and then I went to the seaside. I would probably rather go to another British city than do that. I'd rather move to Sheffield than move to Margate. Like, why? why just a whole month. But that, I'd love again. to do an open house on tour to Sheffield. Um, in the book, you talk about your shared garden and the walls that were constructed in the 1970s to make these allotments. And if readers would like to know more what I'm talking about, then you should buy the book. Um, <laughs> And basically how these problems of the 1970s, you say, have become such an obsessive focus um, that the problems of the 21st century are simply ignored. But I want to understand a bit more because, you know, sort of devil's advocate, it, could it not be that those decisions that are made in the 1970s, very much in good faith then, actually become the burden of the 21st century that they're no longer fit for? That's exactly the point, really. I spent so much time arguing with people that think that, the, you know, the most important thing in London is jobs and investment. And it's like we've got jobs and investment coming out of our ears. Like the most important thing in London is that people are living in shit. Um, you know, is that people that, like you know, are sleeping in sheds. Like, you know, are paying like an amount that would at one point have been able to buy you a small island to live in Woolwich, you know, in like an ex-council flat yeah. or a basement flat in Woolwich. That's the real issue. And I think a lot of people in London's um, politics and a lot of people that write about London, like Sir Simon Jenkins, bless his gotten socks, um, write as if it's still that city. And I think London underwent the, these huge transformations in the last like, literally like 25 years that people have really not grappled with a lot of the time. That London after 1945 emptied at an astonishing rate. I mean, mm. the amount of people that have left in the last six months would be nothing on that. I mean, London's population went down to about 6 million between 1945 and 1980. And now we're back at, not only back to the 1945 level, we're actually above it. Um, you know, that London now has more people living in it than it ever has in its history. So, you know, that a lot of people of a certain age remember a city that's declining. They remember an industrial city in decline with a lot of housing that people didn't really want to live in you know, I, I find people still talking of a certain age of like, but hard to let estates. And I'm like, there are no hard to let estates in London. Every estate in London has a waiting list as long as you're armed. Like the, the place they remember, which is encapsulated beautifully in Patrick Keeler's film London from 1994, does not exist. Instead, there's one where, you know, the overwhelming problem is not unemployment, but poor quality work. Well, the overwhelming problem is not, you know, depopulated housing estates, but overpopulated private housing. Responding to that time 50 years later just does my head in. I think um, possibly one of the things that's not really discussed about much as well is that between that time and now, because of the lack of investment in new public housing, obviously prices in house prices in London have skyrocketed. And that then it, it, you end up in a situation where someone who can own quite a an uninteresting one-bedroom flat 
Um, but that, in this kind of logic of I'm based in London, that that would then, if they ever sold out, translates into some kind of castle in the countryside. But then as well as that, it's also translated into a total rage against the people who are happening to living in public housing in London. And this idea that they're therefore living in a castle. They're living in a castle in Windsor or wherever it is because of the fact that they just live in this place that's had a dysfunctional housing market. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and that's the thing that, 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 you know, I suppose it's getting back to the, the thing I was saying about how the first victims of this kind of London system are Londoners. People are kind of, you know, the, the, the fact that like housing estates are seen by your kind of policy exchange types and until recently by a lot of Labour councils as brownfield land, that something like the Aylesbury estate being treated much the same as you would treat a disused factory. And something like that is such contempt for people's lives that I can't even... I can't even begin to, you know, to, 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 to fathom how they get away with it. Something that I noticed across the chapters was that, you know, the term gentrification, which has been bounded around for so many years, and I think that it's, it's almost used so much now that people don't really question what actually that process is and, and what, what that involves, and it does involve things like turning um, how some, some housing into brownfield sites. But why is it important when we're reading about celebrating these really ordinary places like the, you know, like a disused warehouse, like a housing estate, like the healthcare centre? Why is it important, do you think, to consider a process like gentrification in relation to why we should celebrate such places of ordinariness? One of the things that actually the, the, the book does is avoids talking quite, talking directly about gentrification that much because. I think it's over-discussed, and I think it also misses the fact that a lot of the apparent beneficiaries from gentrification are also victims of it. But there is also, I think, uh, this really easy thing that people do of just like going, ah, this is all the fault of the cereal cafes. It's like, no, it's not. It's the fault of like 40 years of of continuous, you know, kind of government sponsorship of finance, insurance and real estate and not much else. You know, a whole load about what's what's happened in London that's sort of interesting comes from gentrification, seen very, very broadly. You know, so the, the idea of gentrification is Ruth Glass looking at Islington and Camden in the 60s and talking about, you know, how these areas that had kind of become quite dilapidated are then kind of being bought up by, by teachers. There's a really big difference between, like, a teacher moving into a Georgian terrorist in 1965 and, you know, Roman Abramovich moving into Belgravia. These are not the same thing. You know, someone in Islington in 1965 setting up like a, a, a bookshop is not the same as Box Park. London's had gentrification since the 50s. Um, what it's had, I think, since around like the early 2000s is something quite different, which is a, a kind of financial avalanche which affects people who are gentrified out of areas and it affects the people that are gentrifying them out. And nobody really wins from it apart from the developers. And ultimately, I, I think it sort of sets people who are actually on the same side against each other quite a lot. It's sort of curious that in that the, its base level, gentrification involves a kind of um, restoration of the mm. Victorian grandeur of London, but also why integrating an open plan kitchen with connections to the garden um, yeah, it's very easily Tarazzo read. Yeah, surface. yeah. There's like a, there's a very clear kind of aesthetics uh, to it, which, regardless of all the other things we've just discussed, is evident. But really, uh, obviously, London's moved through a massive shift now. Maybe one of the new aesthetics of London is it? Yeah, what are we actually valuing now instead? It's just you know, 
a bit of space to walk or cycle along in the park or um, being able to get into the store without queuing too mm. long. I mean, like, you know, that, 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 that it turns out, you know, when, when, when push comes to shove, that, you know, Burgess Park or Ruskin Park are, like, far more important than, you know, the entirety of Shoreditch. I mean, sorry for people that actually live in Shoreditch, where, where I, I have to walk quite a long distance to find a decent park. Um, but, you know, that the, the, all of those sorts of things, sort of scare quotes, nighttime economy, the city, Canary Wharf, pop-up spaces and so forth, and Peckham levels and all of this, that this really turns out to be so much less important than, than your local park. And those kind of superfluous spaces in a crisis are so important that, that, that suddenly they kind of take on something. That, and we've talked about this quite a lot already. Would you say you're optimistic about London? Oh, and actually maybe quick, quick sub-question. Are you feeling more optimistic about it since <laughs> lockdown or less? <laughs> As in, do you, do you think that this has been the shock to this, you know, this sort of, this big churning, this, the, the churning that everyone was going on about, right, we need a new normal. And actually this is what we had time to think about with the space and the quietness of lockdown, what that might look like, but then suddenly we're all eating out to help out again and no one knows whether they're coming or going. Do you feel like we're on the cusp of something new? And if you do, are you optimistic about what that new is? I suppose this kind of is connected with so many of the things you've been talking about. And I feel that that it offers a possibility and nothing beyond that. That possibility could very easily be missed. I think a similar possibility emerged in the aftermath of the financial crisis 12 years ago and was also missed. But the possibility is there, that London could be imagined in a totally new way. You know, that the, the high streets and workplaces and housing and public spaces could be, you know, completely um, reoriented as, as places for, you know, for people to, 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 to enjoy their lives um, rather than to kind of produce value for, you know, um, whichever financial institution. People have been shown a little example of it happening. And that's kind of connected to also the, uh, an issue of climate change. That You know, for about two months, there were no planes in the air. Traffic disappeared. I feel like we're all about to be guilt-tripped away, out of this. But let's, you know, put our hand on our heart and admit we liked it. Well, there's, there's data, there's survey data to show something like 80% of people didn't want to go back to the previous normal. I mean, it was people loved it. Clean air, they could hear the birds singing. Uh, they were chatting to their neighbours, and they were cooking their own food and feeling a bit healthier. And of course, well. they bloody well liked it. And you know, in the same way that, like, in, 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 you know, that's why there's so much effort and like trying to make everyone go back to work, go back to prep. It's because actually, people don't want to go to prep. People went to prep because they were tired and they were fed up, and the prep was convenient. No one actually wants to go to bloody prep. This realization also that's happened, where a substantial part of the British economy relies on people buying shit sandwiches on their way to shit jobs. I mean, the crucial thing is there will be real spatial consequences because so much of London's built environment was structured around this, this system, which, you know, for example, a gym, because you can't move enough in your office because you're glued to your desk to look good in front of your boss. Uh, all of the, the fast uh, lunch outlets because, uh, because, you know, for all the reasons we just discussed. So, I mean, when you think we, we, we're optimistic about London, what happens to those spaces and what happens to the people, the amazing people, often overqualified people, underpaid people uh, that worked in them? One of the things that people will ask is kind of, you know, pointing to kind of empty high streets and going like, what could, you know, um, we must, we, we must get this back to normal. We must, you know, get this kind of pre economy going again. And lots of the things that are in the book are about ways of doing public space that are not that. 
And they are, some of them are things like the Polish Community Centre, some of them are things like the Arches in Brixton. You know, they, they, are, they are nothing really to do with that London, with that kind of commuting chain stores, kind of, you know, eating a wrap on, on, on a crowded train London. They're, 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 they're not that. But they are uses of non-residential space. They are town centre space and high street space and community space. And there are so many other things that you can do with those spaces than, you know, eat, eat, eat a cold sandwich in them. So, Owen, you, you've written and edited some pretty amazing books over the years, and we're all looking forward to Red Metropolis coming out, and um, it's hopefully something we'll be discussing on this podcast again soon with you. Yeah, what, what was it like to work on a book like this? Uh, did you ever think you'd be editing The Open, Open House Guide? I really, really enjoyed it. One of the few things I've really liked over the last few years is is editing, which I hadn't done before. Um, it was a very, very, very fulfilling thing to do, and I'm immensely proud of it. There's something about working on something like that collectively as well that's a lot more fun. And the sort of the use of design and illustration. I've got to say, because... Rose has just done the most amazing job. I can't, it's so beautiful. I got the feeling that Rose will be able to speak for herself on this, but I, I think she also felt, as, as, as I did, that this was a kind of like, so many things that you'd had at the back of your mind that you'd wanted to do that you could now get to do. Um, and it's like, oh my God, I'm going to be allowed to get away with this. Um, a hell of a lot of it was like, I can't believe I'm being allowed to get away with this. I mean, it is, it's got some beautiful features, like the fact that it uses three tones of ink, gold, yeah. uh, black and blue. Yeah. Uh, it has uh, artefacts drawn from the London Metropolitan Archives, yeah. like they've been photographed and reproduced. Some of the absolutely fascinating, sort of bizarre objects from the capital. It's very tactile. It's, it's a bit like London, really. It's just got lots. It's got something for everyone uh, as an object, and as something bizarre and extraordinary characters that you can meet along the way, and they'll tell you about things at length. You know, lots of people kind of pay lip service to the idea of London being very complex, and then they tell the same bloody stories about it, about you know, <laughs> about William Blake and yeah. you know, and and the sixties and the craze or whatever the hell and. I'm, I'm fairly confident that most of these stories have not been told in a publication like this. And I think it was, I mean, I, I very much sort of thought of it as a guidebook for Londoners. And of course, Open House is primarily for Londoners. That's one of the fun things about it is that it's a kind of, you know, tourism for in London for Londoners. So here's a quick one. Um, how would 2020 Open House Festival compared to other years and how you've experienced the festival? How would you typically... Uh, enjoy open house um well i mean what i've generally liked doing at open house is going to places quite far from from where i live so you know like the 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 the, the thing that I, I i always like is actually going up to the quite swanky bits of west london so there's a kind of a sort of typical day mentioned in in in, in that introduction where you'd sort of take in something like Leighton house you know that's completely bizarre and malevolent orientalist building and then like the Czech embassy from the 60s and then get yeah, Portobello Road to Trellick Tower and you've got all of these kind of poles of London all happening at once and you know it's it's not a lot like South East London up there so you have that sense of it being you know being a tourist in your own city. When you say it's sort of looking into other people's lives getting that sort of insight into how the other half lives 
if someone were a complete cynic and they said open house is just for people to be really, really nosy and to poke around into some wealthy person who has commissioned an architect to do up their home, what would be your defence? One of the things about, London, about, about open house that's found in London is precisely the fact that because you have these people cheek by jowl, that one group of those people never get to go into the houses and the spaces of that other group. Whereas in open house, you can get to do that. And there's ways of doing that that are more interesting than others. You know, that, that there's huge swathes of kind of residential architecture that you don't get to see in. Um, and it's fun to be able to. So, and, and the, the other thing I think is that the fact that a lot of it involves public buildings being opened up, which are kind of public, but people don't really see as public in the way that they, they actually are. You know, like you can go on open house to something like Walthamstow Town Hall. And in theory, you should be able to go to Walthamstow Town Hall any day of the week. But in reality, you don't. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, that they, that has this other strand, which is showing people what they actually showing people what they actually have access to um, yeah. and bringing that to much more kind of public attention than, than it otherwise would. Well, um, Owen, thank you very much for joining us on the Open House special episode of the Open City podcast. It's been a real joy. Uh, it's a fantastic, beautiful, inspiring book. I have one copy so far and might be uh, picking up a few more to send to relatives. We've been discussing the alternative guide to the London boroughs, edited by Owen Hathley and designed by Rosa Nussbaum of Studio Christopher Victor. It's now available to buy from the website and from some bookshops around London. This podcast was brought to you by Open City, the creator of London's largest architecture festival, opening up hundreds of buildings to the public each year. Go to openhouselondon.org.uk forward slash appeal to help the charity that's been hit hard by COVID-19. A big thank you to Massive Music for making our podcast track, to our editor, Ed Ryman, and our illustrator, Claudia Alexandrino, to our podcast host, Selassie Satipa, Armin Nuri, Lara Kinnear, Merlin Fulcher, and our producer, Ruby Maynard-Smith, and the Open City star, Rhea Martin, Zoe Cave, and Sean Milliner. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Mannies and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.